eyes closed. Notice where you are, wherever that is. Notice how your body feels. Don't try to change it. Just notice sensations. Look over your body and let it be however it is. Notice your thoughts. Let your thoughts be whatever they are. Don't try to change them. Don't try to move them. Don't try to get anywhere. You're noticing your sensations and noticing your thoughts just as they are. And now, notice who's noticing those sensations and thoughts. Notice that there's a you, a consciousness, invisible, located nowhere, just here. You are not your thoughts. You are not your sensations. You are an invisible, infinite consciousness, noticing them come and go, in and out, passing through, never affecting or changing or hurting or diminishing or even expanding for that matter, the infinite peace, love, beingness that you are. So for this moment, for today, and in fact, for the rest of eternity, whenever you see something that concerns you, remember who you are. Look at all of life from the vantage point of who you are, an invisible, infinite consciousness located nowhere with infinite possibility. So knowing that, slowly come back to the room. Once there was a little boy a lot like you and me all trapped inside his man-made web yet burning to be free now being just a little boy he did not know what he should do he felt he was too small to help himself to muddle through so he said help me someone help me please Someone who could ease his pain He started with 
his friends and relatives, but it was all in vain, through hospitals and doctors, till he really thought he was insane. He even tried religion, but God wouldn't set him right again. So he cried, help me someone, help me please, my spirits are so song when I was 20 and I had just gotten out of spending two months in a mental institution and it looked like a nervous breakdown but really it was that I was going in the wrong direction I was not living truth I was studying to be a concert pianist when what I really wanted to do was be in theater and I was married to a woman. And as Sean said to me, she was a lovely woman. I'm having dinner with her next week, in fact. She's coming to New York. But she was not the right man for me. 
So, at that time, it seemed like my dreams and my career had fallen apart. I wasn't going to be a concert pianist, and I wasn't going to be married to my childhood sweetheart like my parents had been, so I thought I was supposed to be. But this breakdown was happening because I was in the wrong place. I wasn't a concert pianist, and I was gay. But I was moving in the wrong direction, and my deeper wisdom would not let me not be true to myself. So, it all fell apart. I got out of the hospital. I had to make a list so I remember it all. I had huge anxiety. I couldn't work. I thought, my life is over. I got out of the marriage. One day, I went to walk across the room, and I... Every time I walked or anything, the floor would go like this, the panic disorder, the anxiety. My heart would pound. I couldn't breathe. And one day I got so angry, and I said, I want to walk across the room. And I know that all that stuff is going to happen. And so I said, you want to walk across the room? Walk across the room. And the room spun, and the room shook, and my shook, and all that. But I did it. And I began to write songs, like this one, my first songs based on my experience. And I took a job at a summer camp where I was asked, could I write musicals with the kids? I didn't know that I could do that, but I did it. I managed to graduate college, because this happened when I was in college. And I went to New York, still anxious, still but willing to pursue what I wanted to pursue. And one Christmas Eve, I said to my father, drive me down to Macy's busiest store in the city on the busiest night in the city. Drop me at 6th Avenue and pick me up at 7th. And I walked through Macy's, shaking, trembling, spinning. But I did it. So I learned from this that I could do things no matter what was going on inside of me. I found a theater, a little theater, 13th Street Theater. I took a class and the teacher asked me if I would play his class. I was this little theater did a show called Boy Meets Boy, a landmark gay musical. Here I was, I came out. And coming out was the first time in my life that I made a choice based on my inner wisdom rather than on what the world thought of me. So even though there was a time where I thought I'd have to kill myself if I was gay, it's become my best thing. I did the Fantastics off-Broadway. I played an audition for a student, for Mitch Lee, who wrote Man of La Mancha. And I ended up doing four Broadway shows, conducting them. And I would put a sign on my music stand that said, so die. Because I'm standing there, anxiety disorder, thousand people here, a stage full of people in a little spot, can't move for two hours. So die. And so as I said, I learned that I could go through tremendous anxiety and still move forward. And this led to my writing about it and teaching about it in later life. I began to realize, as I conducted on Broadway, that I was a fake, that I wasn't really controlling the orchestra. I didn't really know what I was doing. So I took three years off and took six lessons a week and learned how to conduct. And I met my partner, my previous partner, so I was able to be in a relationship. I took the show Song and Dance on the road to figure out, to, to practice what I had learned in conducting. It was my sixth Broadway show. And I realized I was tired of conducting. Wasn't what I wanted to do. Wasn't what I was supposed to do. And writing was in the background. 
but I was always too afraid to do that and kept pushing my other career. So what happened? I fell apart again. My relationship and career were stagnant. I couldn't move forward. I couldn't commit to writing. And so I decided to spend a month in our little country house by myself. And I went there with our little dog. And I cooked. And I watched movies. And I cried. And I slept. And I did nothing. And I thought, I'm never going to do anything again. I am at the wall. It's all over. I'm done. That month turned into two months. I just was not moving. But something was processing. Something I had to accept. There was something more for me that was hiding behind my idea of what I was supposed to do and how I was supposed to hold it together. So after two months, with no conscious revelation, nothing that I said, oh, I figured this out, I went home. I wrote my first musical. I produced five Nancy Lamont albums. I wrote most of my well-known songs. Listen to my heart. We can be kind. We live on borrowed time. Rich, famous, and powerful. I'll be here with you just in time for Christmas. I conducted four Disney movies, wrote three children television series, wrote three musicals with Peter Kellogg, and supervised Beauty and the Beast Broadway. The most fertile, prolific period of my life came after that fall apart. And I'm saying this because I know many of you if you think about it, have been in those periods where, oh my God, it's all over. I'll never have any money again. There's no work. There's nothing. I don't know what I want to do. And I've watched you go through it and something else emerge. This is the way life works. It goes in and out. So I started to feel discontent. And uh, I was in uh, Houston doing Beauty and the Beast Broadway. And I said to Alan Menken, who wrote it and wrote all the movies I conducted, I'm making a fortune here, but I'm feeling depressed. And he looked at me and he said, you're depressed because you're one of the few people who's supposed to be doing what I'm doing, writing this stuff. And I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot right now because I could do a movie on a five minute conversation with Alan. We were that in sync in terms of our work. And I'm gonna tell you, if I were you, I'd take three years and phase me out of your life. And I did. And I did a little less on Pocahontas. I did a little less on Hunchback. And then I turned down Hercules. I turned down Toy Story. I turned down the extra money they offered me. And I made the decision to write. So I was really flying. Everything was moving along. And then, as I say in my thought exchange book, disaster strikes. It was 1995 and I was flying high. I had conducted five Broadway shows, was the music supervisor of Beauty and the Beast Broadway, and I was on my fourth major Disney movie. I had become an award-winning cabaret songwriter, had a hip hop song with Diana Ross, and most gratifying of all, had produced five wonderful CDs for Nancy Lamont, perhaps the most extraordinary cabaret singer who had ever lived. Was actually seeing move, Nancy move out of cabaret and into the larger world of national stardom. On top of that, on a personal level, my partner and I had just celebrated our 10th anniversary. Even with all this, 
The nagging emptiness still persisted, but I assumed that all I had to do was find a way to have a number one pop hit song, write my own Broadway musical, and get Nancy to start him, and I would be home. After all, what more was there to do? What more was there to life? Nancy had had Crohn's disease for nearly her entire life. Although she had amazing powers to triumph and get herself onto the stage, no matter what, this disease had always seriously impeded her career. In 1993, she had a surgery that changed all that, and she was finally well. Now nothing could stop her, or so we thought. In May of 1995, Nancy came over to my house one afternoon and announced that she had just been to the doctor and she had uterine cancer. She assured me the doctor said it was totally operable and that, in fact, she could wait a few months to finish her latest CD before having the surgery. I was skeptical, but she insisted. So that's what we did, producing by far the most lavish and popular of her CDs. The CD came out November 15th. Nancy died December 13th. The world fell apart for me, but since everyone around me who had been associated with Nancy truly fell apart, I had to keep going. I had promised her on her deathbed that everyone in the world would hear her sing, and I was going to do that. My assistant couldn't function and quit a few days after her death. My partner, for whom I had secured the job of manager and director, had been appointed executor of Nancy's will, but it soon became clear that he too was non-functional. Even with all this dysfunction around me, I had the incredible good fortune to find a great business manager to run the company. Together we started to promote Nancy's CDs in a way that led to exponentially greater sales than ever before. Then out of the blue, Nancy's family came after us, demanding money and control of the record company. They had never participated in Nancy's career in any way, but being her family, they wanted a say in what happened now that she was gone. Lawsuits ensued, which caused the company to fold. A dream I'd been working on eight years was turned to dust. All the money we had made was lost in a legal battle, and we had to close up shop. A few years later, my partner fell in love with a singer I'd introduced him to and left me. I spent the next three years alone, unable to get so much as a decent date. It was as if my deepest fears were coming home. Why was all this happening? Only years later, in hindsight, what I realized that like my nervous breakdown when I was 20, these seemingly disastrous events were not disasters at all, but my unerring inner sense of guidance moving me in the direction I needed to go. I can hear you asking, how could these outer events have had anything to do with my inner guidance system? Good question. You have to read on to find the answers. <laughs> So for three years, I was devastated. I was really in bad shape. But in those years, I found unity. And I met Sean. And so everything was perfect, because Sean is perfect, and that's the end of my talk. <laughs> I put out a songbook. I did my own show, Listen to My Heart. I created the Thought Exchange. I published my first book, this one, and I have five books published now. And I moved to Norwalk. And five days after moving to Norwalk, God hit me on the head and I fell on ice and had a concussion. And God was telling me, stop pushing. Stop trying to get somewhere. Stop thinking you have to be something. And I let go and I found all of you, the value of which, of whom, is much greater than all this stuff. I was asked to do the Today Show. I was on the Today Show for 10 years, writing a song a month. I recorded my own CDs. I did a solo show at 54 Below. And then big stuff 
started to happen. I did the show Scandalous, which was my first Broadway show that I wrote, and it was stressful and disastrous and difficult. My father had a stroke. My father had a girlfriend. Enough said. <laughs> and in that year, I began to have vocal trouble. I began to lose my voice. I had a second concussion. I fought past it. But my voice would not work. And I thought, my voice is my life. I have a song. As long as I can sing, I'm okay. And I couldn't sing. And I couldn't talk. And I had to say, what is this voice stuff? Well, all of the other fallings apart, there was this notion that I wasn't doing the right thing. And if I did the right thing in this world, I'd be okay. But that kept not working. It kept falling apart. So there was something more that needed, that I needed to know. And I started to ask, what is this? And I decided today to talk about this, even though I didn't know if I could talk or if I could sing. So I realized that there's something I've been looking for, and my life has been focused on the wrong thing. There's a wonderful expression. You spend your life climbing the ladder of success only to realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> so I looked. What's going on with me? I teach thought exchange, but I don't practice it. I said to myself, I'm a phony. My stuff doesn't work. And I realized, oh, my stuff works. I just don't do it. As much as I teach about and know about being spirit, I'm still stuck in the limited material world, still doing spirituality to try to get something in the material world, and still working small, partaking of what I think I know and can control instead of really letting go to spirit and all it has to offer. So first, as the song says, I went to hospitals and doctors and tried to get rid of this, fix it, get back to what I was doing before. But I'm in my late 60s, my very, very late 60s. <laughs> and my body wouldn't let me do that anymore. Spirit wouldn't let me. This is it. This is my chance. I've been teaching spirituality for half my life, but I've been afraid to live it. In Al-Anon, I used to joke that I'm totally willing to give over to spirit as long as this, 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 or this does not happen. <laughs> and spirit knows better where I should go. So I thought back to the nervous breakdown, the long sabbatical I had to take, Nancy Lamont's death, the concussion I had, and I thought, okay, each one of these things was upsetting, but it led to a breaking out of a bind I was in, a shift in my thinking, a letting go of old ways, something new that I needed to break through that I'd been afraid to face. So I finally let go and gave up and said, spirit, guide me. I may never achieve the things I want, I may never sing. I may never talk. I may never get over this. So I stopped the doctors. I stopped the studying. I stopped trying to fix this and get back to my former state. I gave up. And every night as I went to bed, I said, Spirit, what is this here for? Why is this here? And all of a sudden, a doctor appeared, who's a doctor, but also 
a complimentary medicine person, a spiritual guy. And he said to me, I'm not even going to scope you because there's nothing wrong with your voice. You need to go in and ask yourself, why am I stopping my voice? Why am I stopping my voice? It's not outside of me. He sent me to do some holotropic breathing, which is this in-out breathing, and I discovered where I was holding my breath. And then, uh, a few months ago at Unity, I was talking to an opera singer friend of mine, and she said, this isn't your throat, this is your diaphragm. You are frozen in the in position. You are frozen in the in-breath. You are in a state of panic. And I said, great, but I'm not studying. And I ran into her last Sunday when I went in with Sean, because he had to do New York last Sunday. And she said, let me get my hands on you. And I went to her, and she showed me how I, what she said to me was, you breathe in, God breathes out. You set up the position where you are open, but the support, the breath, you do not do. Now, I know this as a writer. I don't write songs. I set up a circumstance where God, spirit, can write the songs through me. It was the same thing here. And she said to me, I want you to come to me. Now, she's someone I've worked with in Thought Exchange a lot. Come to me five times a week. Might take months. And I'm doing that. Because this is not, this is something different. This is, there is a technique. I have to set myself up so that spirit can show me what to do, and so that spirit can do the thing that I was trying to do myself. Air creates speech and singing, not muscle. And that is true of life. And I was wrestling with it, but as Einstein said, a problem cannot be solved within the system that created it in the first place. You can't solve it by trying, but by positioning yourself to allow spirit to work. And so I can't always grasp that, but when I have a problem, I'm starting to know which direction to go in, and it's letting go, getting out of the way in a specific way. And I realized as I was working on this talk that there is a technique for living life. Also, there is a technique for handling all the issues in our lives. And I've known about this technique for years, because I discovered thought exchange. And, but I haven't been doing it. And we hear little things, like I would go to voice teachers, and they would tell me, let go, or do this or that, just as we're told in, in, in church, give over to God, do this and that. But I couldn't do it, because I was coming from the wrong place. I was coming from within that system. So in order to allow ourselves to live full and abundant lives, and to not be fooled or captured by the illusion of problems and attachment to physical results. We have to look the problems in the eye, but we must look them in the eye from the vantage point that I set up in the meditation. We are not the problems. We are the infinite observer. And if, as soon as we get caught in 
oh my goodness, my coaching is drying up, I don't have money, I'm gonna lose my house. And you watch, this afternoon we're gonna look at that, you watch how my thought can go from someone looked at me the wrong way to death in about 10 seconds. <laughs> and you, when you know you're looking at that, as opposed to are that, everything changes. You are distinct from what you are experiencing. I am the container for my voice. I am not my voice. And this is true about our lives. We are the container for our life, for what's happening in it. We are not the life or the events that are happening in it. We are just this container. And this makes all the difference. So this afternoon, we're going to do a thought exchange workshop in which we're going to go to who we are and where we really live and have a radical acceptance of the truth of what's actually going on, which is impossible to do if you think you are that truth. But when we know we're the infinite, invisible observer, it's easy to do. And once you know and practice this, once you view your life from this stance, all the problems are still there. All the problems are still there, but they move from being problems to being gifts. You know, Pema Chodron says the only solid ground we have to stand on is to know there's no solid ground to stand on. And our health comes together, and it falls apart. And money comes to us, and then money leaves us. And I, I remember I was uh, teaching opera in Savannah, and Mignon Dunn, this great uh, metropolitan opera singer who's in her 80s, she said, kids, this is the way it works. You come here, and you don't have it. And then you get it. Then you lose it. Then you get it. Then you lose it. And then you finally get it. And then you lose it. <laughs> <laughs> and so to practice where we really live, which is in the observer, in spirit, we're going to look at what's going on in our minds, and we're going to position ourselves so that whether it's up or down, there are people who make money in the stock market, whether it's rising or falling. We have the ability to look at all this if we know who we are. And so, let's practice now, this afternoon at 1 o'clock. We're doing a workshop here. Grab yourself some lunch and join us if you can. Let's practice living life where it's really lived, in God, in spirit, in the invisible part of us that is God. Let's know who we are, and then, only then, can we start viewing all these quote-unquote troubles as signposts, as assistance, as the gift that they really are. Powerful things that are here. 
When the gift of trouble is put under your tree, make yourself unwrap it. Take a deep breath, pick up the box, set it on your knee. Sometimes the bow is tied in a knot, the tape's too sticky, your fingers get caught. You may not like the way the ribbon is tied, but open the box, there's a beautiful gift inside. Trouble is worth the trouble, though it doesn't feel so great. When trouble comes, change your plan. Try to appreciate the chance to stick together and to see the problem through. The chance to stop and remember powerful things that are hidden in you. When the gift of trouble is put under your tree, don't forget to say thank you for the lesson or two that is waiting for you in the gift you cannot see. Sometimes the bow is tied in a knot, the tape's too sticky, your fingers get caught. You may not like the way the ribbon is tied, but open the box, there's a beautiful gift inside. You've got to believe there's a beautiful gift inside.